Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and I really hope that you enjoyed last week's first part of my conversation with John Mattis. John is the head of global fraud and risk operations at Etsy, the online marketplace for vintage and handmade items from all over the globe. And we had a really great conversation diving into some of the adjustments and notable differences he's observed in transitioning from working for a traditional retailer like Macy's to a growing two-sided marketplace and why he believes fraud and losses to retailers have increased so dramatically in the last two years. And as well as we talked quite a bit about post-transaction investigations and challenges in working with law enforcement to prosecute bad actors, stealing from in-store and online companies. If you have not listened to the first part, I highly recommend going back. But today I'm going to let you listen in on the second part of our conversation. To be honest, time got away from me. We were having such a good conversation that we just kept going and I kind of forgot to pay attention to the clock to make the decision. Do we keep this at one episode or do we make it part two? So Sometimes I just get so engaged in conversation, I kind of forgot that I'm, forget that I'm the one running the clocks. But lucky you, you get a second episode out of it. And we talked about different things on this one. So we talked about just how expansive the impact of loss, fraud, and abuse can be on an online business. It's far beyond chargebacks. Ways to present a business case of the total cost of fraud to leadership in ways that they'll understand. What John believes are the most important qualities in a fraud fighter when hiring new team members. And he has some great advice on people management as well. And then he wraps up our conversation by sharing some advice for anyone interested in staying successful in this industry. I really appreciated John's time, his expertise, his knowledge and experience. And I believe that you will too. So with that, I will let you listen in on the second part of my conversation with John Mattis. Well, and so we've talked a lot about the financial impact of theft and fraud, and a lot of fraud and trust and safety teams are focused primarily on that, which makes sense. It's quantifiable, it's easier, but it's it's often more simple to explain the cost of fraud and abuse in your system within dollars online. But what are other impacts that they should be considering? That's a great question because traditionally, whether it's a brick and mortar, you, know, you rely heavily on your shortage and strip statistics as to the merchandise you think you have versus what you really have. And on the fraud side of it, it's whatever your credit card chargeback loss is, that's your number one metric as to whether you're doing well or not. And that has evolved because there's so much interaction between whether it's an online and brick and mortar, or there's so many other ways in which loss occurs. That's something that has really been taking off over the last five or six years, maybe even seven or eight years, is the thought process behind total retail loss. Because 
there is much more to loss, whether it's known loss or unknown loss, that equals up into the big equation and as to whether or not you're profitable. So, and that has an additional reaction in that is what the cost is to our customers and lost customers based on either have being the victim of an account takeover, being the victim of any credit card theft, being a victim or seeing a shoplifting in a store, those things, all of those things equal out. So the total retail loss model is something that some retailers have gone to and some have not. And it, there's also a place for this in, in e-commerce and financial institution, that's the total cost of fraud. So it's very, very similar because there's different buckets it goes into. You could have a loss from ATO. You could have loss from buyer fraud, seller fraud. If it's a two-sided marketplace, you could have loss that occurs from people that have dropped out of the equation, meaning that they no longer want to do business with you. The teenager that has six to eight credit cards now, the likely of them having the same six to eight credit cards five years from now is highly unlikely. So there's definitely customers that move in between companies based on who is either the flavor of the day or who can give me the most for my money. There's all of that competition out there and all of it creates loss. So whether gift card losses, whether it's cash theft, if it's a physical store, whether it's return fraud, the combination of credit card fraud and return fraud, the combination of internal theft and external theft and the collusive activity that happens with both is really a terrible nightmare for a retailer when you have internal and externals that are working together in a particular brick and mortar. So we need to be able to say, here are all the metrics for these things. Here are the traditional metrics. Here are the metrics that maybe is on a spreadsheet someplace or is in a, is in a data model someplace, but it shows what our profitability is or isn't. And then being able to put them all together and say, you know what? I'm a loss expert. I'm a fraud expert. This is my ability is to not just deal with shortage loss or fraud loss. It's to impact all of these variables that really comes down to how profitable you are in the overall sector. So there's so many different things. We've grown. And the, the fraud and asset protection professional of today has a much more complex job. Their job is to protect not just the company, but the customer, the physical building. When you look at brick and mortars, they have so many other things that they have exposure to, such as shooting incidents and general unrest and protests and all of these flash mobs, all of these different things that they have to deal with, in addition to protecting the customer, in addition to protecting the employee, and also being able to root out causes of loss. It's a complex job. And this total retail loss model and total retail fraud model is really the best way to say, here's my ultimate return on investment as a fraud professional. I couldn't agree more. I think there are two things that I really focus on on this as well. And, and one of them is brand reputation. I think it was Riskify that came out with a study a few months ago that said that and granted, these are they asked four thousand consumers, and and consumers will answer a question, a specific question, maybe differently than the way that they'll actually carry it out when it happens. But sixty percent of the consumers surveyed said that if their account was taken over at a specific shop online, they would not want to make purchases with them again. So even though that's a brand reputational issue, that impacts the bottom line. There's so many other instances of that. I mean, the basic example I use a lot of times when I'm working with a merchant who the 
senior leadership is involved and, and they're very concerned that fraud consultants going to come in and just stop all the sales. I first explained to them that I'm very aware of who pays my paycheck as well as theirs. It's the good guys, not the bad guys. And that that is something that absolutely acceptance percentage, I think should be even more important than chargebacks. And that's something Diana Gajic Physic and I have talked about on a previous episode as well, where, so you ease their mind, but then you also say, has your credit card ever been stolen somewhere? Oh yeah. Well, where was it used? And they know it right off the top of their head. And then I ask, well, how many people did you tell? And they kind of get this thought of like, you know, that's the brand reputation, right? Even though you and I can both agree that the consumer probably had something to do, you know, should have had some responsibility in the keeping, caring, keeping of their password or their credit card or others. They're not going to blame themselves. They're going to blame the company that accepted their credit card when they weren't the ones that made the purchase. And that is something that is hard to measure in dollars and cents. That's why I rely on some surveys by solution providers in the industry. It's equally important to embrace as a company that, and that's why I think we've seen a lot of marketplaces, especially go to the trust and safety model, knowing that trust and safety is what builds brand loyalty and consumer loyalty. But I think there's, there's a lot of room for, for improvement there, but that's, that's something that I feel like I, I talk about a lot because I think it's important and often missed in conversation, especially when you're just focusing on chargebacks. You also have to think about cost of customer acquisition, right? Your marketing department spent money on getting that customer in. If they're not a good customer and they tell 10 friends, well, now there's even more marketing spend out the door on items that, you know, whether it's an attempt or a success, you're still out money. Yeah. And you'd be able to talk the language of C-suite individuals is important for as you get into more of a leadership position in both asset protection and in the fraud industries, because it's going to be less about this particular metric is, is not good. And that's my job is to impact that. What does if you're a C-suite and you're looking at this one metric and it's obviously not good, but what does that mean to the big picture? When you start talking on their terms and you can translate my fraud, my theft into lost customers, there's a different level of attention that all of a sudden that conversation brings. And that's where you get resources. That's where you get more things that will come into play as far as decision-making, policy-making, how we, how you allocate resources, resources that you get all come from a quality discussion where you're able to translate what you do into C-suite. And that will be able to, that's sort of the thing that could help you get over and upper management understand the cause and effect of everything that happens from anti-loss professionals and anti-fraud professionals. Absolutely. And that's something I've had to learn the hard way, or at least learn with experience. I certainly wasn't the best at it early on in my career, but learned that that is so important. And it's also just a good way to make a business case for additional resources as well is thinking about everything from a business perspective, not just a micro fraud or loss prevention perspective. You can actually find more areas of opportunity, in my opinion, to advocate for the importance of keeping your customers and your company safe when you are looking at it from a bigger picture rather than just micro focused on just saving dollars and cents. But it takes a different part of your brain as well as a lot of listening to what specific departments care about. Yeah. 
you know, and I think back to all the conversations that I would have either with a CFO or a president of a company or operations VP and say, this is our problem and this is where we're getting lost and we need to do X, X, and X in order to impact this. And I say to myself, if I had just changed my delivery and been a little bit more global so that I was speaking on their terms versus my own, I probably would have gotten the resources that I needed, or I probably would have gotten the policy change that I was looking for. But because I was sort of narrow-minded, singularly minded, focused on what was important to me versus how it meant more to the overall business, it was a great way to learn. I, I learned it through trial and error, but that is something that as an overall industry, uh, something that you could take with you and, and be much more productive there. Fartology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Those conversations. Absolutely. I, I really agree. Going back to fighting fraud on the ground, what are I often am, am thinking of things as what tools the fraudsters have or bad actors or whatever name you're calling them, and then what tools we have as fraud fighters. And I appreciate that you think of it in a similar way. So, what are the most important tools any fraud fighter must have in their tool belt in order to be successful? That's a great question because I really attribute they attribute this to individuals and how people become really good at what they do. So, and there's really two things to think about when it comes to this. You could be a really good fraud fighter and have all of the resources in the world, but you're good because of the resources. Or you could have no resources and still be a good fraud fighter because you have certain intangibles that really can't be taught. You just have them. And the perfect world is both. So I really try to start with getting resources is the hardest piece of it. So if you had to say what makes, what does a fraud fighter as an individual need in order to be successful, I attribute it to a couple of different things. Number one is you need to be a good listener because you need to be able to understand situations. You need to be able to understand problems. 
And the only way to do that is to be able to listen and observe. So if you don't have good listening skills, if you can't pay attention, if you can't observe and formulate points of view in your head without talking, you're going to be in trouble as far as your ability to become really good at what you do and advance in, in the order of doing that. So this is the first one. Second one is a natural level of inquisitivity. So you have to constantly say, why is this the way it is? And when you see people that are like that, they're naturally inquisitive. I love people that are faced with something. All of a sudden, the first thing you do is get their, their phone out and Google because they're naturally inquisitive. They want to know the answers to things. Not knowing is bothersome. So having that natural level of inquisitivity is absolutely uh, critical in the tool belt. The, fourth, the third thing is, is the whole ego thing. You need to be able to put your ego aside. The individual that thinks they know the answers to everything are usually the individuals that have the shortest career span in a given field, especially in an ever-changing dynamic world of fraud and asset protection. You need to be able to put your ego aside and then use your listening skills to say, in order to be able to formulate points of view. And then the last thing, which I think is the one thing that separates really good fraud fighters and asset protection people from the ones that are your everyday doing the same thing, but never improving, never really getting results. And that is a heart, having a real fire in your belly, so to speak, a desire to want to understand things, a desire to want to improve. An, a real heart and desire to be able to challenge the way things have always been in order to be able to have effective change. Now, when you put all four of those together, the listening, the inquisitivity, the putting your ego aside, and then having heart, those are the things that I look for. Because you can't, you could have all the resources in the world, even if you don't have any of those things, you could be somewhat successful. You really want to be able to start with the pure package. And those are the things that I look for and are really vital to having in any fraud fighters tool belt. I agree with you. So I was nodding my head a lot when you were talking. One, because I often say that my goal is to listen almost as much as I talk, if not more, on a regular basis. And a lot of people assume that because I'm I'm a talker, I'm not listening, but I really enjoy learning from other people. That's how, I mean, back to collaboration, that's how any of us are going to get better and iron sharpens iron. But also I've said on more than one occasion, because I am so lucky to know so many fraud fighters and have known several for well over a decade, the people who at some point started thinking that they know everything about this industry or just in general, it means that at some point along the way, they stopped learning. And those are often the people who are using yesterday's tools to try to fight today's fraud. They're the people who are often have a big ego as well. And so I agree with you. I think the other piece, and I think this goes with the inquisitive part, but also wanting to solve a problem, right? And continually solving, being a problem solver is so key. Whether you're talking at an analyst level or strategic, whether it's operational or strategic, there's so many different paths you can go down whether it's product or whether it's the people management or just so many different things now. And, and some of us have been able to be fairly good at a lot of them, but it, it takes a lot of time and patience with yourself, knowing that part of the part of the fun is to learn and, and not know everything. But I've had this conversation multiple times with different groups of merchants as far as what they look for in hiring, especially for fraud positions. And a couple of people have said, 
that they traditionally try to hire gamers, like online gamers, because the theory is if they're going to spend hours trying to look for that one magical potion that's hiding in this one you know, level of a game, they're going to do the same. They're going to have the same patience and tenacity and inquisitiveness to try to find the fraud and ask, why does this go with this? And what, what story are these individual data points telling me? But I, as a non-gamer, I think that there are other uh, attributes to look for as well. So I appreciate that you're looking at the soft skills and not just what they like to do in their free time, though I think there's a lot of overlap. Right. And that, that brings another thing that is a great technique, and that is utilizing the team that works for you to think differently. So if you have a team of investigators or uh, fraud people or asset protection professionals, they're in, they're in a single mode to be able to identify things. And sometimes the best way to figure out what is happening from a theft and fraud perspective is to say to yourself, if I was a bad guy, this is how I would do it. And give them a couple of scenarios, have them write it down and then collect them all. And assuming you got a 10 people on your staff, you told the right three things, all of a sudden that's 30 ideas. Now there'll be some redundancy there. But when you look, when you take that piece of paper with the 30 ways in which to either commit a fraud or steal from the company, whether you're an internal employee or if you're an external fraudster or a bad guy, when you put those things together, you find some real gold in there. And so if you didn't think that way, what would you do? you'd wait for a confidential tip to tell you what's already happened. You'd wait for some type of report. You'd wait for the loss to happen and then you investigate it and you say, oh, here's what's happening. Instead of saying, here are people that know all of our weaknesses because they're work from the inside out. What do they think? That is not only ultra confidential information, but real great information in which you should work off of because you need to be able to, you know, there's no reason why the things that are happening aren't already happening today. If you're thinking of it, it's already happening. And if it's already happening, it's causing loss that we haven't identified yet. So that's the way to look at things. And you can do that no matter what kind of company, what kind of retailer you have, what kind of service that you provide, where you're looking to ensure that you're making a profit, not losing your profits. You can use that exercise to your advantage and it makes people think of things in a much different way. That's something that I enjoy doing on my own as well as with friends and colleagues, et cetera. But oftentimes when I see a new business model, especially over the last several years, I'm sure you do the same thing. Being advertised, my fraud brain's already going to work. How is that business model going to be exploited? How is that new product going to be exploited or, or looked at? And not just from a payment fraud perspective, but from abuse, from because to our points earlier, refund fraud policy or any kind of policy abuse, whether it's refund fraud or loyalty fraud or promo code abuse, all of those things add up. And they also create a permissive environment where consumers might just start out by stacking promos or creating an extra account so they can refer themselves to get the extra thing. But then it nothing happens. So, you know, I'm going to go tell 10 friends or I'm going to go create 10 more accounts. It just keeps going. But I think that I really appreciate that exercise example, because I do think that if there are listeners who haven't done something like that internally, it's critical. And cybersecurity does something similar with tabletop exercises of how would bad actors, hackers get into our system? And then what would we do to, or what defenses would come into play? 
And I think it's something that I've suggested as well in a, in a little bit different way, but very similar to what you just said, where you're engaging your team and it also gets your team to think about things in a bigger picture way, in a global way that oftentimes, depending on the position as well as the person, they might prefer to look at the trees over the forest, but it makes them think about the forest over the trees for a little bit. And it's a good exercise for them. And it's something different than their every day. And so it's a benefit to everyone to do that. I'm sure it doesn't play out in the same way over Zoom as it, as it would in person, but it can still be a really fun, fun thing. So I have a feeling that I'll be getting a few messages from people saying that they'll be uh, deploying that and I will try to pass those along to you. You know, it's, it's funny. That was, that's based on a personal quirk. Huh. So this is where it's like, I think that I'm a nut. <laughs> this is, I do this all the time. Yep. You know, like literally... I mean, I've told people this time and time again, like literally everything from being on the train and I see the conductor and they give him cash. And all of a sudden I see him with this big water kick. I'm saying, how is this person, if he was bad, how would he do it? Mm-hmm. Have that water cash and there's got to be somebody out there that's been bad and that have done bad things. With mm-hmm. this. So how are they getting over on the system? But part of it in his other pocket. It's, not, yeah. mm-hmm. it's like, I'm constantly in this mode of trying to figure out how people are stealing to the point where I said, you know what? I got to take this crazy thought process that I had. What if I said to the team, try this hmm. and see if you're crazy like me, or maybe this has some application in the workplace. So, but it seems odd, but then all of a sudden you, you turn around and there's the tabletop exercises and the white hat exercises and the extra ethical hacking. It's like, there are people that are crazy, just like me out there doing Similar thing. So it must work. Yeah. I was going to say, if you're a nut, I mean, consider me an almond, right? Like <laughs> I'm right there with you. I, I, because I have traditionally been on the e-commerce side, whether it's payments or, or fraud, I'm usually thinking about it from a card not present perspective and not as much in person. However, I have worked with some companies on card present chargebacks and other forms of loss, usually internal. So I sometimes think about that, but not not to the extent you do, but I can see how that would also threaten your faith in humanity, though I think we all struggle with that a lot in this industry. And and just when we are focused on the one or two or five percent of our traffic within our company that is inherently risky, it, it can make us lose faith in humanity, especially when you start to peel back the layers and look at what these financial crimes can can and are funding. But I think that I think it's a really good exercise for every, I appreciate the fact that you took your own, what you thought might be your neurosis and put it into being a practical application for your company, but it also just has other perks, right? It allows your team members to know that their opinion and the way they think is valuable to the company as well as to their leader. And I don't think there's anything more important these days. I mean, with as many people as I know of that are looking or have been, you know, or were looking at some point for a new opportunity, the majority of them, it comes down to being appreciated by leadership, whether that's salary or whether that's just the being actually appreciated and valued. And so I think that's just one way for leaders in fraud to convey that they value and appreciate their team's way of thinking while also being of significant value to the company. Absolutely. You know, and this, this, I'm glad you mentioned that because a big part of 
my individual management style is I want the people that work for me to love what they do. And I've learned over many years is is that in the investigations world, in the anti-fraud, anti-loss world, you need to love what you do in order to be good at what you do. Now, there are many, many jobs that you could absolutely hate, but be really good at. But investigations is not one of them. So you cannot be a good investigator and hate what you do. You need to love it. And so having the ability to love your job sometimes is you just love what you do. And sometimes you just love working where you work or you love working with the people. You love the place that you work. And you can't have one without the other. You need to be able to make people know that they matter 100% and they are the most important thing. How well they can do their job is a great asset. But the number one thing is everybody has different things that motivate them. But I don't think there's anybody in in the workforce that's going to say that the boss doesn't care about me is a good thing. And you need to be able to do that. And that's part of loving your job. You know, part of you loving your job as a leader is to make sure the people that work for you love their job or at least really, 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 really like their job because you know you're going to get the best product. Yes. You're going to get a team that is highly engaged, highly energetic, highly good at what they do. And the upward mobility for a team that operates that way is endless. Yeah. And I think that one of the downfalls of people, managers or leaders that aren't on the ground in fraud or haven't had that experience in fraud prevention or loss prevention, et cetera, is that oftentimes they will see their practitioners as replaceable because in a lot of other departments, if you lose somebody in marketing, you can pretty quickly find somebody else in marketing for a similar company that can come in and and do the job. They all had similar, you know, a lot of them probably went to college for it or there's similar terms used. There's similar, a lot of times in marketing and sales, et cetera, the same systems are being used by most companies. And in fraud and payments, no one knows your company, the ins and outs of everything within your company, as well as your fraud you know, practitioners. So I'm with you on that. Well, wrapping this up, what are some opportunities for anyone interested in a career as a fraud professional? And what advice do you have to stay successful in this field? I think you touched on a little bit of it, but just kind of packaging it up a little bit more would be a great place to, a great note to end on. Uh, oh, I certainly hope so. What a um, so, you know, I mentioned the things that are really great qualities to have and the things that you can't really teach, but there's a couple of things that you could use in order to have in a really quality, enjoyable, long career. If you choose to stay in this business or maybe any other business, but I, I personally think that these are things that have helped me. And then the first thing was, is to have a mentor, mm-hmm. to have someone in your corner. And most likely it's something that you need to seek out early on in your career where you could say, I really like the way that they operate. I like their style. They're really successful because they're good at this or that. Something that you really resonate with. And then how can you utilize a relationship with that individual to learn how they do it so that you could apply it to your own individual style? But having a mentor is super important. I've had a couple of mentors that I still have today and that I'm still friends with and or in contact with that I can't imagine being where I am today without their expertise. Even if it's something that is not necessarily related to the business that you're in. Yeah. 
maybe their individual management style, something that you resonated with that was really something you were interested in. So having a mentor is the number one thing. The other thing is, in especially in the asset protection fraud, e-commerce fraud world, is to be a business person first, a fraud person second. Mm. And so I mentioned meeting with C-suite and some of the things that I've made mistakes on in the past. It's like, that's not something that I did initially. I was a fraud person first, yeah, business person second, and that doesn't take off. So understanding the business, understand what makes the business work, understand all of the different characteristics of being a business person will help you in becoming better at your chosen craft. The customer is always right. And you need to be able to operate that way because inevitably they will make the calls at the end of the day. So business person first, fraud person, asset protection person, second. Third thing is keep, stay educated. Always be learning. Always be absorbing new things. If there's something new out there you don't know, try to learn it. Don't be afraid to learn. This is one of those things that if you think back maybe maybe 20 years ago, maybe longer, the people that were able to say, okay, here's a computer, this scares me. Yeah. Or say, this is the way it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Learn. I mean, you still have people today that just don't like computers. Because they never took, they never latched onto when they first came out. Right. No, those individuals probably struggle with a lot of different things. And so always stay educated, be a sponge for anything that's in the business, whether it's podcasts, podcasts like this, podcasts that are about self-development, anything to make yourself better than the day before is super, super important. And then the last thing is to take every single opportunity you can to constantly reinvent yourself. I am not the same executive I was 10 years ago. Mm. I'm not even the same executive that I was a year ago because I want to constantly reinvent myself so that I could provide the best possible product to the industry, to where out to family, friends, things like that. So try to always think of ways to reinvent yourself, which is part of staying educated, part of staying constantly improving because the individuals that are productive in high levels are not the same individuals that they were when they started. They learn from trial and error and applied those learnings, applied those errors, and then constantly tried to improve themselves. So constantly taking that opportunity, I think is super important. So I usually break things down into fours. So those are the four things that I recommend. I like that. It's like a tabletop, right? The four four pillars of a tabletop. Well, John, I really appreciate your time and expertise and experiences and with you sharing them today and actually both parts of the episode. So thank you so much. And uh, I will make sure to put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes so people can reach out to you if they have specific questions. I um, actually look forward to seeing you soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for everything that you do for the industry. Everybody I know knows you. Uh, you (laughs) Great things. And I agree. Uh, So thank you for your role in educating the industry. It's, it's super important. Thank you. I honor you. Oh, you make me emotional. Thanks, John. No, I appreciate it. I, I mean, really, it comes down to what you said, right? Doing what you love. And I really learned. And, and I think, you know, you have too, that, that, I love fighting fraud, but I actually really love supporting the people who fight fraud on the ground even more. I think I'm a pretty decent cheerleader and people connector. And so I, I likewise though, like I couldn't be half as effective without everyone's trust and just openness with me. So thank you right back to you. 
I love this and I've worked with a lot of amazing and smart people. I continue to be surrounded by amazing and smart people. And there's the more energy that we can put behind it, the better. Couldn't agree more. Well, thanks again. Thank you. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.